It's conversational military history. This is War Stories. So this was a really fun conversation. You know, one introduction led to another, to another, and next thing I know, Sayer and I had the chance to sit down and chat with Major General Retired John Ron, which is awesome. General Ron is a graduate of the West Point class of January 1943, and not long after graduation, found himself a part of the 5th Ranger Battalion headed towards Omaha Beach on D-Day. General Ron is just full of really interesting stories. Like, I had no idea that West Point cadets traveled to Europe after war broke out before the U.S. entered in 1941, which is crazy. I mean, we talked for two hours and barely scratched the surface, wrapping things up on June 7th, 1944, which was the very beginning of General Ron's career. It was an absolute honor being able to talk with Major General Ron, and hopefully we can connect again to continue to hear more of his story. Anyways, hope you enjoy. Well, um, General Ron, sir, again, thank you so much for taking the time. My name is Preston Stewart. We spoke briefly on the phone the other day. My friend yeah. Sayer Payne here is, as, is, is here as well. Yeah. Hey, sir. Hi. Sayer. I have you really excited. Let me get your name, Preston, and what's the other first? Sayer, S-A-Y-R-E. Yeah, but that's your last name. Actually, no. Well, that's actually, well, it's my middle name, but that's what I go by. It is a last name. Okay. S-A-Y-R-E. R-E. Mm -hmm. Okay, I just had to make a note. My memory is so bad on short-term issues that uh, I don't even remember my own name most of the time. Mm -hmm. I write down names as well. I used to play a lot of golf, and uh, would you'd spend four hours with the same person, and I would have to write down their name at the beginning, or else it'd be four hours later. We'd spend together, and I'd forget their name. So I know that move. Yeah, I know what you mean. Well, sir, I you, go ahead. I'm does sorry. it bother you if I continue to eat? Not at all. Okay. Not at all. Okay. I was doing a little um, reading last night, sir, and I th did I see correctly that your your father was in the military as well? Is that correct? That's right. <clears throat> That's the reason I was born at Fort Benning. Oh. Because all good infantrymen should be born at Fort Benning. <laughs> what? So what year was that? 1922. Sayers infantry guy spent a April, little time down there. April, April 22nd, to be exact. And then you were West Point class of 1943. Is that correct? Uh, actually, 43 January. They had two classes. Grad. My class graduated about five months early, and the uh, original 44 graduated in June of 43. Wow. Does we called it June and January, which happened to be a very popular song at that, at that time. <laughs> Does so did you mean, start West Point? What did you start West Point in 1939? I entered January 1st, 1939. Oh wow. So the world was not yet. Time. 
the world was not yet really at war. No, as a matter of fact, it was the 1st of September, just three months later to the day that the Germans invaded Poland. So what did that feel like being a freshman cadet when all of a sudden, here we go again? Well, for us, it wasn't again, um, but most of us knew a great deal about World War I. Um, my father actually graduated on the uh, 1st of November of 1918. And uh, so, and I lived on army posts and all of his friends or the, my parents' friends were army officers or their wives and their children knowing. Um, it didn't feel any, it was just a perfectly normal event as far as we were concerned. Were most of the instructors and, and staff there at West Point, were, were most of them World War I veterans? Uh, now that I can't tell because uh, World War I, um, 1918 had been uh, 21 years. Mm. Sure, so it right. may have only been the senior, it would have only been the senior leadership at that point. Well, all of our instructors were, for practical purposes, all of our instructors were uh, regular army officers. The tacks were all regular army officers. So uh, it was a, it was really a regular army deal. What were you calling World War I at that point? What was the name for it? Uh, we called it World War, the war to end all wars. And suddenly it became World War One on September 1st. Or, I beg your pardon, it, World War Two on September 1st. And what we had called the Great War uh, now was World War One. Didn't take 35 seconds to make that change. <laughs> Interesting. And that's something I wouldn't even have known at what time when they uh, flipped their names or became World War II? Well, you know, you had to change names when circumstances changed. It's like yeah. Queen Elizabeth um, became Queen Elizabeth II. Just like that. Mm. Yeah. That is true. Did you have any, do, do you remember at all, sir, if you had classmates or people that were at West Point at the same time that left the academy in order to maybe enlist or find another path into service, given that there was a war going on? I know that there were a couple of people, but they more likely were having academic troubles and knew that they'd uh, end up being dismissed. So they just got a head start and resigned. I don't know of any such cases, I'm just assuming. I'm, I'm quite sure that that is the reason for many of the people who left at that point in time. Uh, they just weren't doing well on academics, so go and list. But again, <clears throat> we weren't in yet, in the war yet. We didn't come in the war until December 7th of 42. 
So uh, we had, in 1939, we had lots of time to think about it. And uh, a few people left the academy, but I, I think more for academics than for patriotism. Understood. So then what was that like, the, uh, the Monday or just the day of Pearl Harbor? Because you're like halfway through your time there at West Point. By the time that actually happens, what, what is that like? Um, I just know I was at the movies when um, uh, in the old gym and uh, we're coming out of the movie and a classmate, very good friend of mine, ran up to us and said, hey, guys, the Japs have just attacked Pearl Harbor. And we said, oh, Scotty, forget it. You know, that's a bunch of junk. And he said, no, no, I mean it. So we all rushed over to barracks and pulled out our little BP-10s, which were the first of the portable radios, about the size of a SCR-236. Was that a, the platoon radio was a 236? I think that's right. Um, anyway, we grabbed our little radios and started listening and Practically the first thing we heard was the president talking. Wow. Did, did that feel like a surprise then? Um, because it's like, I'm a, I, so we're 36 years old and sometimes you hear these, what we knew and what we didn't know at the time and growing up, it seemed like Pearl Harbor was a shock, but um, like what, what it did looking back or even at the time, hindsight being 2020 with, especially like being the Japanese, was that a surprise versus one of the European powers? Like that to me is what's real interesting is that it was the Japanese. We haven't really fought them before, had much to do with Japan at that time. So what sort of, what was it like to be the enemy like that? Well, we were at war long before the, Pearl Harbor Day with the Japanese. Mm -hmm. uh, we had taken many, many warlike actions. We had uh, closed down the straits, which were strategically their source of East Indian uh, oil, rubber, food, raw materials like iron and things like that. And uh, we had really pressed hard on Japan. And in retrospect, we all <clears throat> understood why they attacked. Did your did your time at West Point change much, sir? From they just decided to surprise us, and mm. we knew that at West Point. Mm. Makes sense. Though we had really, we had agonized through the Battle of Britain and uh, thoroughly expected that uh, when we came into the war and we knew we would be in the war, we just didn't know when, uh, but we, we knew we were going into the war and we were almost certain it would be on the uh, British side, not the German side, though there was a lot of German sympathy in the United States at that time. They had the German-American Bund, they had, um, people like Lindbergh who said, we cannot win a war against Germany with our state of preparedness and particularly our state of 
we call it the Air Corps in those days, uh, with the state of our Air Corps versus theirs. They have magnificent new fighter planes. What did we call them? We call them pursuit planes and bombers. And we had practically nothing in the way of bombers except some old World War I uh, relics. No. Um, it was uh, pretty likely that we were going to go to war against Germany and on the side of England. <clears throat> Did your preparation and time at West Point change much, sir, from before Pearl Harbor to after, knowing now that the United States is at war? Did much shift? Only an attitude. <clears throat> Only an attitude. Um, now we knew who the enemy was. Now we know which direction to look. And of course, we were looking away from what really turned out to be the major theater for us. Mm. Did you think that you would, did you have any idea where you'd be going, like have an inkling, like, did you feel like everyone was gonna be going to the Pacific at that time? Um, I don't think that most of us had analyzed it that much. Um, I myself, uh, well, at that time, I had no brothers. I was very sympathetic with the British. And I, I just knew we would end up on their side. And that's what we did. And from that point on, uh, academics changed. It was my, let's see, it was uh, still my second class year right after furlough. Oh, you, you all don't know about furlough, but that's all right. You, you have been deprived of a glimpse of heaven. But- um, Is that a no. long break between your second and third year, sir? Yeah. Okay. At the end of, end of yearling year, you got 77 days of leave, which is, we used to call the month of Sundays hmm. or the week of Sundays, I guess it was. But uh, it, it was wonderful. Most cadets did what I did. They went home. A few very intelligent cadets uh, bundled up their little old traveling bag and went to Europe. And they visited Germany and they visited France. This is after the war had begun. Whoa. And uh, they learned a great deal. And I'd say that was well over 10% of the class did that. Um, most of the class, as I say, did what I did. They just went home. I went home and played golf for practical purposes. I like it. But uh, many of my classmates uh, needed more money. Let's say $55 a month doesn't buy you very much. So, um, and I think we got ration money in $21 a month and ration money beyond that. But uh, many of my classes ended up mowing the lawn at Arlington Cemetery. It paid well. And it was, you couldn't mow the lawn in the dark. So uh, it really didn't affect anybody's uh, uh, business to go, go mow the lawn. They got a lot of money for it and uh, were providing a patriotic as other men went to war being drafted and things like that. Mm -hmm. uh, Furlough, furlough was just heaven on earth, uh, just so different 
from being a cadet. Mm -hmm. but, uh, it was it was necessary for balance. And by the way, we did not get weekends and things like that. We did get football trips. Uh, usually half the Corps went to one game and the next game, the other half of the Corps would go. Yeah, but uh, for all except my first class year, we only had 12 companies, A through M. So just a single regiment. Hmm. I think that furlough sayer, now we have long weekends and Thanksgiving break and Christmas break, and it's, it's pretty easy for oh, the yeah. cadets to get out of there. This was not yeah. the case, I imagine, sir. Yeah, in, in my case, I was smart enough to get into the choir. And that was four weekends in New York as a plebe. It was much better than, than uh, sitting at home in barracks. So I, I did get those four weekends. And uh, you got probably two or three uh, trips to New York or Yale or Harvard. Uh, the, the half of the Corps that went to Yale did not go to Harvard. The other half went to Harvard. And uh, we played Pennsylvania, usually in Philadelphia. So <clears throat> football season was really pretty good. We got away. at 1 a.m. usually and slept all the way back to West Point in uniform, in coaches. But away for a little while. But away. <laughs> Completely devoid of discipline. Because the first classmen didn't go where the plebes went, I'll assure you of that. Ah, good for everybody. Well, Actually, a, a football weekend was great. When I say weekend, it ended at midnight of the game day. But uh, the hotels in New York City, the Waldorf, the Waldorf Astoria, the Astor, the Piccadilly, they all, uh, they like cadets so much. We didn't pay cover charge when we went in, which oh, was... Wow. I mean, that was a big deal because cover charge was about $10. And uh, it was worth, in today's money, uh, $10 is probably worth five cents. <laughs> was, uh, well, the Waldorf is a, it's a pretty fancy. I mean, it's got to feel, I couldn't imagine seeing what it looked like back then. Um, it looked exactly like it looked today. Yeah. Oh, can you? Can you explain? Well, sure. White roof. Mm. I think Paul Whiteman's orchestra was the orchestra that they had. Mm. But they were the football weekends were pretty pretty much fun. Would you be able to explain the the you know, the, the two classes graduating back to back like you did, sir? Well, um, as I say, on September 1st, the academic department scrambled madly trying to figure out what they were going to do with us who were, it was clear the plans had already been made, but uh, they were scrambling uh, 
to get us into the right classes and things like that. Some of them are classes that have never been taught. The law course, we uh, had a approximately a half year's course instead of the one year that was planned. Um, I can't think of what other classes we had in uh, first class academics, but uh, all of them were cut short and some of them were completely dropped and uh, fairly quickly. Well, we were on a football weekend. We played Columbia down there and we went down by the Hudson River Dayliner. I remember that distinctly when somebody put out the call, report to your tactical officers, uh, all first class report to your tactical officer's cabin. And we all knew what it was just in the basic planning. So uh, we got in there and uh, let's see, my class was probably 20 to 25 people in a company. And uh, when we got in there, he said, gentlemen, I have just cleared you for secret. And we all were eager, jumping up and things like that. And he said, uh, in approximately, and he gave something like five hours, we will be at war, United States forces will invade Africa. Wow. And I mean, it was just that sudden for us that we uh, were actually at war. Since it was Columbia, it was probably in November that he told us this. Mm. But it was quite a shock, and it was very motivating, comparatively speaking. Especially given that you know whether it's January or May or June, graduation's coming up fast. Graduation coming up fast. And I think at that time he told us what the date of graduation would be. <clears throat> And that's relatively unique, that sped up graduation at West Point. I, is, is that the only time it's happened, sir, or was there? Oh, no, my, father's, my father was a yearling when he was graduated. Hmm. Two What's years. What's a yearling? Two Sophomore. years. He was a yearling, November 1st, 1918. He was the original class of 21. Hmm. Wow. It was for them, it was really a shock. On the November 1st of 1918, the military academy graduated three classes. One class in the morning and two in the afternoon. Do, did they that, do the same thing in the Civil War? Did that happen too? Anybody know? No, no. It wouldn't have happened in the Civil War. All those first classmen simply did not want to be general officers in the Confederate Army so early. Yeah, yeah. So, so upon, then, go ahead, Sarah. I was going to say during all this process, what's the um, this is time frame? What's the branching process like? Like, what are people like? How do how do you getting assessed? And who get are you? Do you get a pick infantry? Um, does tank is uh, being armor officer is that even in existence at this point? Um, armor was in existence. 
Uh, infantry, of course, was in existence. Cavalry was in existence, but there wasn't a horse. They were light tanks, scout cars, and things like that. The uh, M, I guess it was M3 tank, was a Sponson 75 millimeter. That is, it, it, the turret did not exist but uh, you fired from guns that had very little traverse. You uh, mm. had to rotate the tank by its tracks. Uh, you did not rotate the tank more than five or 10 degrees. Um, the tech services were all in order. Um, engineers were, and we had a, a perfectly normal branch selection just like they do today, but we didn't make that much of it. Um, and uh, almost all of the top academics went into the engineers. I went into the engineers. And uh, after that, they were pretty much scattered. You did not enter the tech services uh, like they can today. But I re as I recall, somebody selects the tech services today, they have to serve two years or so something that in the combat arms. I'm not sure how that works anymore, but it did work like that for a while. Okay. Um, so we all just were fed to the major combat arms branches, Signal Corps, Signal Corps and Air Corps. Well, Air Corps was a little different. Uh, I guess I have to have a little diversion there. Um, Early after the, we were in the war, they made us all take physical exams. And the purpose of it was to find out all cadets who were qualified to fly, which meant 20-20 vision and a whole bunch of other physical tests. Uh, color blindness, for example, that was a, one of the major things they focused on for this physical exam that we had. And, uh, we were then known as qualified for Air, Air Corps and not qualified for Air Corps. They took the people who were qualified for Air Corps and just took them away from West Point, put them through primary, put them through basic, put them through advanced. And by the time we graduated, we had about 200 uh, pilots wearing wings. Uh, they came back and in two months got the academics necessary, which was mostly law. I mean, they'd had the uh, academics they needed in basic and primary and advanced training, that type thing. So um, we had two types of uh, officer graduate, those who uh, were into the Air Corps and those who were into the regular branches. And it create that created a divide that existed for the rest of our lives. Really? Oh yeah, uh, their experiences were totally different. No, the way the Air Corps used to work prior to World War II, um, you could get into the Air Corps for two years, and then you had to return to your basic branch. So your uh, membership of the Air Corps, sometimes called the United States Army Air Force, but that was later in the war they changed the name. Um, the officer that uh, 
chose the Air Corps had to return to his basic branch for at least two years. So we didn't even have really well-trained pilots. Oh, people still did their cross countries and things like that. But uh, it totally different from the war itself where once you got in, you flew your 30 missions or whatever it was and uh, you stayed in the Air Corps, you went back to a training field in the US after your, uh, the necessary number of missions was met. And that varied during the war as uh, we got into bombing of Europe, uh, it was no longer 20 missions, it was 30 missions or 40. I don't, not being in the Air Corps, I didn't pay any attention to that. And I really don't know much about it. But, uh, mm. uh, they, they were treated differently. Not that they didn't have to be treated differently, but uh, there was no longer, you gotta go back to your basic branch for two years now. Mm. What did that process look like for you, sir, after graduation? Um, you know generally where you're headed, you'd be at East or West, well, but. I, I knew as an engineer that I would go to Belvoir. They had what they called a West Point refresher course, which was supposed to combine the uh, equivalent of OCS and uh, not advanced training, just, just basic training in the Corps of Engineers. And uh, it was not a bit of different, not a bit different from uh, what, we were, what we had already gotten as first classmen at West Point. We built bridges. Oh my God, we built bridges. We did scouting and patrolling. And all sorts of things that I just thought were a total waste of time because we just finished doing that. Mm. But the, what happened next was they sent us across the street, uh, US-1, and we went to the Engineer Replacement Training Center, which was regimental in size, and each of us got engineer platoons for six weeks. And uh, that was useful, taking raw recruits from uh, the recruiting stations and putting them through the equivalent of uh, basic training. And uh, I was very lucky. My platoon, at least half of it, was the entire St. Louis University football team. Wow. So I, I had bright young athletes and man, they were good. Um, you gave them an order and they said, yes, sir, and did it. Um, whereas the civilian that came in, he had to learn how to stand up. They, they mm -hmm. couldn't even get attention. So I had a mixture of people who couldn't stand at attention and these sharp young people who'd probably been in ROTC at St. Louis and um, easy to train, eager to be trained. It, it was great. It was truly great. So finished our six weeks there and uh, we went into the barracks room one day, the whole class of us, and uh, they uh, had us select our posts. Um, and they had them all laid out. I think there were close to 50 of us. And uh, I was going to go into the 14th Armored at, uh, I think it was Camp Chaffee, Fort Smith, Arkansas. Mm -hmm. 
mainly that was my mother's town. It was where I was appointed to West Point, though nice. I never lived there except during the summers. And um, I chose, I wanted to choose the 14th. Classmate came up to me begging. He was about two or three numbers behind me in the selection process because we did it by rank, academic rank. And uh, he said, look, my girl is there. We're going to get married. I would like to at least make the transition for her easy. Would you drop the 14th? Oh, and by the way, the ordinance, my father was an ordinance officer by this time. Okay. The uh, ordinance officer of the 14th Armored was uh, Lieutenant Colonel Jack Hendricks, who had basically I babysat the children. I played tennis and golf with Jack and that type thing. And I figured it would be nice to have a lieutenant colonel in the, in the division that at least knew me. Yeah. And uh, all kinds of reasons to want to go to the 14th. But uh, my classmate, don't even remember who it was, was so pleading. I said, rest easy. If it's open when it comes to me, it'll be open uh, at the end of the day and I'll, I'll pick the 10th. Well, the 10th Armored was a different armored division. Uh, totally different from the regular army, uh, the other armored divisions, because the commanding general, Pistol Paul, Pistol Paul, or I don't, don't even remember what his name was now. But anyway, Pistol Paul had concentrated on getting regular army officers into the divisions. Uh, three of my company commanders in the 55th Armored were West Pointers. The battalion commander was a West Pointer. Most army battalions would have one senior officer, uh, maybe the exec, maybe the training officer, uh, would be a West Pointer or a regular. Mm -hmm. And um, the rest would all be uh, reservists, guardsmen, OCSers, that type of thing. And uh, so we were pretty professional in our officer corps in the 10th Armored. And it was a joy to work there because the standards were high, the uh, priorities were high in the acquisition of equipment, things like that. So I uh, really enjoyed my choice. And uh, that's where I started in a bridge platoon of the 50, Company E of the 55th Armored Engineers. Now, the 10th Armored Division has quite a chronicle across Europe during World War II, but you must have changed units before they got ashore. Is that correct? Yeah. Um, we, we went from Fort Benning, and I never knew it until doing some research last month. Uh, I thought that I joined a seasoned outfit because they were professionals and they really, we were in a field camp. We weren't in barracks in the tent. And uh, I thought that we'd gone through uh, unit training and things like that. Not so. I joined the battalion or the division. I joined the battalion uh, I think it was less than two months 
after it was organized. And yet here it was a functioning organization because it had regular officers who were pretty well trained. So it, I, I picked the right division. And uh, when I went into the Colonel and told him I was transferring to the Rangers, uh, he said, damn, he said, I was gonna give you Willie Clapp's company. Uh, the exec Chamberlain, Captain Chamberlain, uh, is going to go out on Cadbury. And uh, I was going to give you C Company of the 55th Armored Engineers. Well, Clapp later became the battalion commander and was killed in Europe. So I'm not so sure I would have liked it. Hmm. Crazy how that plays out. Yes. So this brand how new How did that unit work? Yeah, how did that work with, yeah, the brand new unit? You're an engineer, but you're obviously, we know you ended up going um, infantry. So what is that sort of process looking like? Well, I'll tell you how it happened. <clears throat> Sorry about my chronic Qatar, but uh, when we got to the Tennessee maneuver area, which is, um, when we got there, notices were put on every bulletin board of every unit, and there were one, two, three divisions plus all sorts of ancillary troops. And the um, notice said, uh, anybody who wants to volunteer for a new ranger battalion, um, report it to the first sergeant who will report it to division. And I, let's face it, Bill Darby was from Fort Smith. I was from Fort Smith. And I said, well, I want to follow Darby. And uh, so I volunteered. I was interviewed. They knew I was an engineer officer, but uh, they decided that they didn't have a single soul who knew anything about field fortifications, minefields, the location and the emplacing of mines. Uh, demolitions and uh, carpentry, all those engineer specialties. And they said, we need them. So we'll pick you, Mr. Engineer, and you're suddenly an infantry officer. And that's the way it worked. Uh, I started out as a platoon leader in Company C of the 5th. And uh, after about, let's see, that was September 1st. And uh, in late November, we went to Fort Pierce <clears throat> and they gave me headquarters company in the switch there. So I suddenly was a company commander and uh, happy as a clam over it. And the battalion commander was very weak. So the company commanders really ran the battalion, the exec ran the battalion and he did it with force of personality, not not the authority to do it. Hmm. Um, and this is 43? Took, sir? Are we talking this, 1943? Yeah. September the 1st of 1943, I uh, entered the Ranger Battalion. Okay. And uh, as I say, by the time we went overseas, I was a company commander. And uh, just before the invasion in April, I was promoted to captain. Moving on up. Moving right along. 
When um, when you saw the Colonel Darby poster and the Rangers, it sounds like the Darby name attracted you. When you saw a Ranger battalion, what did that what did that mean back then when you heard Ranger? Well, fortunately, Life magazine heard about the commandos and learned that Darby was organizing a ranger battalion, the first ranger battalion for us. Um, so Life magazine published a lot of articles, when I say a lot, two, three articles about Darby and about the rangers. And when they were so successful uh, in the landings in Africa, uh, reducing the casualties of one division to zero, I think it was the first division, Terry Allen's division, wow. um, the Rangers got a tremendous amount of publicity. And uh, I didn't know Darby. I, I met, had met Darby when I was a, a riddle kid. He was a, a plebe. But uh, he was not a football player, and I didn't pay any attention to this this runt, uh, <laughs> runt cadet, runt plebe who came over to the house. And um, I think they still do it. Um, officers invite cadets over on Saturday and Sunday uh, mm -hmm. simply to let them take off the coats, put on a sweater, drink Coca-Cola or coffee, and... In those days, listen to the radio, play records and think, and even bring girls. A couple of times, the first classman I knew who visited our quarters uh, brought girls and they would dance in the living room and just generally relax. And uh, at that point, it didn't matter whether you were a plebe and there was a first classman there. Um, you didn't treat them like you recognized them but you acknowledged them and it, it worked very well. And everybody uh, developed as a result of it because uh, they got to live like human beings for a short time. Um, being an army brat, I knew all the uh, ordnance uh, officers at West Point very well and uh, particularly the family friends, every Sunday, I would walk out to the North Gate and there in the last set of quarters was Lieutenant Louis Bell and his family. And uh, I just move in there for the Sunday and have a great deal of enjoyment with them because I'd known them for so long. It, it, it worked very nicely. I would, uh, I would think the force would have been pretty small in the thirties when you were growing up. What would be the size of the military? Small. I, the force, yeah, the military itself, when you said you knew a lot of the ordnance officers, I figure there probably weren't a whole lot of them. I mean, compared to what it ended up becoming, of course, later, but the thirties, yeah. it seemed, in my knowledge of history, it seems like the military was pretty small back then. Yeah, I think um, first the army was, uh, 180,000, I think, was the number. And uh, the officer corps was 12,000. And I could have those mixed up, like 120,000 and 18,000 mm -hmm. officers. Mm -hmm. I, I don't remember which number goes with which. 
but it was very, very small. And uh, the Ordnance Corps itself, I had a, as a kid, I had a roster and I remember going down the roster and checking people off and saying, good God, John, you know, over 50% of these people personally. So uh, right. I, 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 I had a, a free ticket in that sense because I always had a place to go wherever there was an ordinance officer. I knew that uh, I could go there and uh, he'd be a colonel by now, but uh, I'd known him as a lieutenant, played with his kids, even babysat perhaps with them. I like that. What, was your dad still in at this time? Yeah, my father served completely through the war. He ended up as commanding officer of Water Belit Arsenal, the cannon arsenal. And uh, he served as the, uh, it the job became the deputy chief of ordnance. But uh, when he was there, he was chief of staff, I guess, of the chief of ordnance. Hmm. Almost all the way through the war. Wow. And again, that didn't hurt. <laughs> Ever. When we're looking at late 43, early 44, sir, there's an invasion of Europe coming and a lot of units, it's going to be a crapshoot. They don't know if they'll be involved, if they'll be early, if they'll be late. Um, but you know what the Rangers had done in North Africa, Sicily, and Italy. Yeah. I imagine you and your men expected to be heavily involved. Yeah, we, we did. We knew, we, knew, <clears throat> we knew that our mission involved a speed march, a fairly long speed march. We were training at about 10 miles. It turned out to be five miles, but we knew that. Uh, we knew it would involve the attack of a fortified position. Uh, we didn't know anything about the cliffs at that point in time that we were worried about or the guns or anything like that. Um, but our, our training was assault of a hostile shore, the assault of fortifications. And we, had, we had working plans <clears throat> for the construction of the German fortifications. I mean, they were that good. Uh, partly thanks to the French, uh, who did heroic work before the invasion itself took place, that type of thing. So uh, we had that kind of an idea. We knew what the Rangers were doing. Uh, we knew about El Guitar. We knew about, uh, oh, what did we call it? Kasserine Pass, the disaster there, and a few things like that. And uh, we even had the, what the Navy calls scuttlebutt about the reasons for Kasserine Pass, which was that Friedendahl had a full field of inspection layout on shelter halves, and all the weapons were dissembled lying there on the shelter, actually, yeah, on the shelter half. And uh, the Germans attacked. The Americans were defenseless. So it was, uh, those were the kind of things you picked up, uh, just hand to mouth, much of it 
probably false, but at least it was motivating toward training. And sir, this training, it sounds, I guess my question is, it sounds like it was very mainland Europe focused. Did you ever have an inkling that you might go to the Pacific? And I'm just curious also how you felt about that being midway through West Point when it's the Japanese that hit you. Um, were there thoughts of like, you, you know, hey, we should be over there kicking Japanese butt. I don't want to go to Europe. Like, what were your personal feelings about those different theaters of operations at that time? Well, actually, <clears throat> I was delighted that we went to England because they still spoke English, at least a variant of English. <laughs> and I must say the money was very variant. But uh, no, I, I was delighted to go to uh, England. I didn't think the Japanese would be very pleasant uh, conquerors. Uh, and they weren't. And uh, did feel that the Germans would observe the article, the Geneva Conventions and things like that. So mm. it was probably better to fight against the Germans than it would be to fight against the Japanese. Yeah, um, more all familiarity. In all, all in all, I was very happy <clears throat> when we uh, went to England and we trained in um, on the Welsh border in the Midlands. We trained in Scotland and then we went moved down to uh, Cornwall and finally to Dorchester. Uh, each of these had major training centers. Uh, the toughest one was the commandos and we trained with them. We took more casualties in training uh, than uh, most units took in the war. Um, it was real tough training that the commandos put you through. These were British commandos? Yes. I imagine. Scotland was, was practically a commando training camp. I imagine by the way you said that, um, that it's in a positive light. The training is that hard that it, it helped the cause later in combat. It was hard. We had, <clears throat> we had a mash with us to handle the casualties. And uh, they were busy. Wow. So what were you doing? What, what did the train, because I know I would imagine the Scotland area, it's probably a hard country already. It is um, hard. So what do you get, what is it? What's uh, the training look like? Well, remember I was headquarters company. So I was not really involved in ranger training. I, my, my duties, for the most part, consisted in obtaining materiel, mm -hmm. obtaining the stoves for the cooks to use, obtaining vehicles the, to get from here to there without having to call on a quartermaster truck company and that type of thing. Mm -hmm. um, I was kept very, very busy doing all sorts of things that I can't even remember now. And um, it was worth it to me. But uh, we, there were two types of training in Scotland. The first was amphibious training where we trained with the same English crews that we would use in the invasion. 
some people were even on the same um, LCA with a coxswain that they knew from earlier training. Uh, we used the same ships, that type thing. So uh, that was the first thing about the training. It was very realistic. It was with the people that would be taking us. So we got to know them, got to know their procedures. We knew the difference between attention on deck and uh, uh, how, how do they... I'm, I'm trying to think of the things the US Navy uh, used versus the British because we had to no learn a completely different language uh, to use them as our transportation into the beaches. Now, the second kind of training was uh, assault in very difficult terrain. As you say, it was very mountainous. Uh, I remember one day uh, having one of the company commanders come into the mess hall and say, good God, today, we were going up a 45 degree slope and the water was so deep, it was over my boots. Clumps of grass held the water so that it was like walking in eight inches of water. And they're going up these awful slopes. It was a, it was very, very difficult training. And we used only live ammunition. That's why we had so many casualties. Mm. We used only live ammunition. And I remember one particular case, um, the 81s, uh, mortar platoon were looking around for targets and they saw a bunch of 60s from one of the companies. The companies carried 60s. And C Company had an extra platoon which carried 81s. Anyway, the uh, 81 platoon saw these 60s hitting. They said, well, let's give them a little bit of assist. So they fired their, their 81s. And while they were traveling, the 60s stopped and the infantry, the Ranger infantry began the assault. And the 81s met up with the Ranger infantry right at the line of resistance. And that day we had eight men uh, wounded or killed. I think four mm. of them. Holy cow. It, yeah. was, it was dangerous work. But, you know, right. we learned a lot by an accident like that. Was this training all um, a mix between the 2nd and the 5th battalions? No. We never even saw the 2nd. Interesting. I'm trying to, the only time we were stationed together was in Swanage, which was in Southern England. And it's where we went for cliff training. They had the priority because they were gonna do the assault of the cliffs. Theoretically, the rest of us merely had to learn how to get up cliffs so that we could fight on top of the cliffs. So that was the only time we were both, both battalions were stationed in the same place. In the Assault Training Center in, in uh, Barnstable, in Bronage, uh, we were probably 10 miles apart. We never intersected with them. We never met them or anything like that. But when we got to Dorset or Dorchester, which was the, the true camp before boarding, we actually boarded in Weymouth and Portland. But uh, when we got to Dorchester, which was our, the last place that we were, we dwelt like human beings in Neeson huts and things like that. Um, we were both in camp D4, but we were a sub camp, they were a sub camp. We never saw each other there. 
except for training. And uh, that is where we were introduced to the four fire ladders mounted on DUKWs. And uh, each of us in full battle gear carrying our three days of rations, rifles, ammunition, everything. We had to do a move up one of those 125 foot ladders. At the top, we had to transfer over to another ladder which was crossed with it. And the ladders were swinging through about 10 foot arcs each. So you had to hit the timing when the two things were in sync and were gonna actually come across and hit each other. And when they hit each other, you had to transfer with all of that crap on your back. Mm. And it was scary at 125 feet above ground. It sounds terrifying. We it had sounds terrifying it. without combat it, gear and without- It was terrifying. We, we had people who absolutely froze on the ladder, on the ladders. Yeah. I don't remember how we handled it. I think we just crawled over them and let them be frozen there. And when the training was through, they brought the ladders down on it, let, let the little boys get off. I uh, might I might have been one of those little boys. What, what, <laughs> I know uh, I have acrophobia and uh, I have a tremendous fear of heights. That's why I was very happy when I flunked the Air Force test at uh, West Point. I said, at least they won't force me into the Air Force or Air Corps. And they were not looking for support people. They were looking for pilots. Right. So, yeah. That's the thing. You don't get to choose, right? The Army's going to choose. You can try to rank what you want, but at the end of the day, they're going to put you where they need you. They're going to put you where they need you. And you may not have had one day's training, but the theme of everything that I give people say, why were you successful in all of the things that you did? And the answer is training. Mm -hmm. We had soldiers who when faced with the enemy, and assigned an area of fire, they pulled the trigger and it was aimed fire. Uh, it was a civil war study, but they found out that in a squad of approximately 12 engaged in contact against an enemy that only one man out of the 12 actually aimed his weapon. The rest just pulled the trigger one way or another. Mm -hmm. And that, that made us, 10 times as effective as ordinary infantry because we were trained. We could count on the men. You send a man out on a patrol and in the regular infantry, they had such men. Audie Murphy is a good example. Uh, we had men who did it and they did it over and over and over again. And as they got smarter, they became survivors. But um, the ordinary infantryman uh, he, he just was a, a lamb following a shepherd. Mm. Yeah, it was just a mass effect. It was a series. They were, they were heroes in themselves. They got killed, they got wounded, and uh, they did contribute. Uh, one of the theories of musketry is Although it's aimed fire, it's aimed at an object, a tree line, a wood pile, a window, 
so uh, when you're not under fire, they did very well, even under fire. But again, the ratio was something like uh, three out of 12 gave us aimed fire and the rest of us gave supporting fire. And it doesn't matter if the bullet hits a branch over your head, you flinch just as much as if it hits the piece of wood you're leaning on. Mm -hmm. Right. And the army seems to have learned that they, they are great on training now. <clears throat> and particularly the Ranger battalions and the special forces. Yeah. Well, even train. sounds like back then you had more time to train versus the, it sounds like the regular army people, they were just filling ranks and going. There wasn't the time that they did. Sounds like you guys had have, to focus. But every assault unit went through Broughton and Barnstable, the assault training center. But they did it with blanks. We did it with live ammunition. Mm. Yeah. And the reason we did, they forbid us to do it. But we did it anyway. We said, we, wow. we got to have this kind of training. And let's face it, forward units are much more careful when riflemen behind them than machine gunners are firing live bullets. Yep. Well, because that's always an issue, too, is just friendly fire and having that awareness of where your rounds are going you know, and who's where and who's maneuvering. And then just being comfortable with always having loaded weapons on you at all times. Yeah. There's something, again, that's just that comfort. It's the training is almost, in my opinion, it's, it's being comfortable doing uncomfortable things. Yeah. It just becomes uh, second nature. And that's where it's like you eliminate the, thinking. It eliminates making a decision. Mm -hmm. Decisions take time. You do it as a reflex. It's great. Tell you one little story that I probably have never told anybody before. Um, I went back to the beach on D plus one or D plus two. I don't remember why, but uh, I always had a bayonet on my rifle. I carried an M1 rifle with armor piercing ammunition. I was an ordnance brat. I knew I used to work in the laboratories that manufactured ammunition, small arms ammunition. And one of my duties was to test bullets. So I knew about bullets and things like that. And uh, I was at Gearville fairly near the exit. And uh, to keep the weapon clean, I always took it and thrust the bayonet into the ground about six or eight inches and uh, left it there. And it was perfectly safe. It, they didn't fall down. That was good Normandy clay, which was kind of red. And uh, I was over lying down or sitting down in, next to a hedgerow and a troop of troops newly landed, walked up the, mount of the bluff and uh, started walking by me. And I didn't want to be around when they uh, got up there. So I stood up pulled my uh, bayonet out of the ground and it was covered with red clay. And I heard a couple of the infantrymen say, God, we heard about the Rangers, but that's blood on that <laughs> bayonet. <laughs> but, 
War was fun. I don't care who it is. We'll be rid of them in a second. I do, do not know how to take an ordinary cell phone and cut off the sound and ring it. But uh, anyway, that's true. You're, you're not coming through. Second here. No. Nope, I don't hear. I heard a rub. You got me? Yeah, no, a little more faint. A little more faint. That's better. Better? Okay. Sorry about that. Um, I can hear you. There was a story. I, I think I have this right, sir, but um, did you run into General Coda on the beach? Oh, yeah. His son was a classmate of mine. We'd known each other for years. I mean, we went to high school together, prep school in West Point. So he was the senior officer at Omaha, is that correct? At least no. early on? No, no. Um, our executive officer, Major Dick Sullivan, was in the next bay. He was in my boat. He was first off the LCA, I was second. He went left, I went right. And that was what we were taught. If the man ahead of you goes to the right, you go to the left or straight, however the circumstances are, but don't go after him. Hmm. That was just part of training. I mean, you did that automatically. So, no, Sully was the senior officer, uh, ranger officer on our beach. And he was not 25 yards from me, separated uh, by the uh, seawall, not, not the seawall, the uh, breakwaters. Hmm. So how long was that when you're, um, you're on those boats, the amphibious assault vehicles, what was the, um, how long were you in the ocean for? I mean, what was that feeling like? You got to be, I'm, you're well trained, of course, and I'm sure you've pictured it a thousand times and you've mocked it a thousand times, but like, yeah. this is the real deal now. Okay. Um, we boarded our landing craft and uh, the Rangers all used British commando landing craft. We, we used the British LCA, not the Higgins boat. Mm. Um, it was quite superior to the Higgins boat, except for one feature. Uh, we were slightly armored. When I say slightly armored, the coxswain was fairly well armored and the rest of the uh, LCAs had a light armor that would handle small arms fire on the outside. We rode lower in the water, much lower in the water than they did. Uh, the, both had the same capacity, 35-ish, uh, both had uh, the same speed, maximum maybe six knots, cruising between four and five knots, things like that. Uh, but the difference was that the Higgins boat had that big ramp sufficient that a Jeep could drive down it. In fact, that was one of the uses of the LC, uh, I guess they call it the LCPR, Armored Personnel with Ramp. Know that? 
VP, LCVP? VP, that was it. But we did have a uh, small ramp called originally, but they got rid of all of them. But the uh, British assault craft had a ramp that was no more than four feet. And the passageway leading from the crew compartment or the uh, passenger compartment was about 10 feet long and was no more than three or four feet wide. And only one man at a time could go down that passageway. So uh, it took us up to three minutes to unload an LCA, whereas the Higgins boat would unload in 30 seconds because the men were four or five abreast getting off the thing. Wow. So in that one respect, <clears throat> the Higgins boat was superior. All other respects, the LCA was superior. And the LCA was designed to hold a commando platoon. We were organized to a man on the British TOE. Uh, we did trade our Boise anti-tank rifles, which were totally useless. We had traded them for BARs, which gave us uh, a one extra BAR per company or something like that. And uh, we even traded uh, light machine guns for the BAR. And when I was in Berlin, which was 1963-ish to 66, that, that period of time, mm -hmm. uh, we went to all, the brigade there went to all sorts of uh, competitions against other nations. They didn't do it in Berlin. You had to transfer down and go to Grafenwehr or something like that. In the light machine gun competition, practically every nation did not bring light machine guns. They brought BARs. Most of them brought BARs. A few of them brought their own automatic rifles to the machine gun competition. And the nations of the world who were familiar with the things, including ourselves, the troops thought the BAR was a better weapon than any machine gun. Now, mm -hmm. the, we did have an A6 machine gun, 1919 A6, which had a, a bipod. And, uh, but it wasn't as good as the BAR because the ammunition was harder to carry and you had to devote too many men to that big box of uh, linked ammunition, that type thing. Because we were on links for the light machine gun. Versus a magazine with the BAR, right? Say is it all again. magazine? The, the BAR is all magazine fed, right? The BAR is all magazine fed, approximately 20 uh, bullets per magazine. But it would chug, 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 chug away. And uh, the uh, men, many men lost their lives trying to recover a BAR or somebody who'd just been killed mm. uh, because it was so valuable. I mean, it was the platoon leader's automatic weapon. We, we now have a SAWS. The BAR was and is still a superb military light machine gun. 
It looks awesome. I'd like to shoot one. Um, I've, but I've, it's yeah. one of those things I've only seen pictures and videos of, never the yeah. real thing. Well, it, it, it chugs out just about chug, 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 chug. It's not a burr. Right. Well, the rounds, 20 round mags, I feel like that'd go pretty quick. Well, you could fire it, and most people did. And most of the testing in the uh, light machine gun testing in the uh, competitions against other countries, uh, most of them were single shot use, not multiple shot use. And in combat, most of our people conserved ammunition and you put it on single shot. I remember it was it was reasonably accurate, but <clears throat> like some artillery does now, when you pull the trigger, the bolt is it. Now that call was important, but you're much more important. Um, the bolt is in the back position when you pull the trigger of a BAR. The bolt is driven forward and the firing pin is fixed to the bolt and that's what shoots it. The overall result is, is that while you are trying to hold your aim, that bolt is moving forward and you have a tendency to compensate for the fact that bolt is moving forward. So uh, an experienced BAR man knows how to cope with that but somebody who just picks one up on the field is going to be hitting the dirt about 30 feet in front of them. Hmm. Sir, I remember... Every good thing has its drawback. Absolutely. True. Very true. I remember hearing that there was a lot of studying prior to the invasion of maps, pictures, overhead imagery. Do you remember how close the shoreline looked to what you expected? Well, <clears throat> in 1980, I wrote a book, actually it was 10 pages about the landing because one of my sergeants said, we've got to get a, a unit history and you're the only one who can write. I mean, these were country boys. <laughs> the best kind. So. Um, I, I wrote this little story of all that I remembered. And uh, in my research, I finished the basic story and I was going researching some of my papers that I had written. And uh, I found a similar story that I had written less than a month after the invasion. You would not have thought they were about the same invasion. Really? What my mind had remembered was all of the tra training we had. In my training, the bluffs were right down on the beach because we were landing at Vierville if we landed at Vierville. We were landing in a fortified area where the bluffs were down on the beach. But where we actually landed, it was over 100 yards to the first bluff. And... Uh, I found out that my memory had had the invasion plan pounded into it so much, I remembered that rather than the invasion. But as soon as I read my story, I said, oh my God, yeah, I remember that, I remember that, which is a lesson in history. The uh, 
most of the stuff, and I'm credited with having an incredible memory of things that happened 72, 73 years ago. Uh, I mean, I can tell you the color of socks we wore, that type thing. But uh, <clears throat> combat, well, what I was trying to say is that people ask me questions and I remember nothing. And but when they trigger just the question, brings the memory back. These are memories long forgotten. Mm -hmm. And uh, I have consulted with at least 30 authors who have published books on D-Day. And uh, the questions they ask have brought to my mind things that I long, long had forgotten. I thought that I remembered things. I didn't. But they would come to mind when I was asked the question and have to search my mind. And suddenly here comes this fresh memory up that I, I didn't even know I had. So I blame that on my incredible memory is the questions of these authors sure. and historians. Most of them, the ones that I deal with were historians who wrote books. Uh, mm -hmm. I much prefer talking with them than authors who write books. No matter how good their search of the archives is, they are not accurate because they don't, the people aren't there to talk to and they, they write books about uh, what other people have written. Mm -hmm. That's a good point. Two or three times removed, right? The story changes just a little many bit. Many of them. A little bit. And many of them, what they do, there's one friend I have particular who's written a large number of totally inaccurate books. Uh, they are writing to support a thesis and mm -hmm. the events, and some of them go back and get plans that were made six or eight months before the invasion and discarded as impractical, and they use them as a way to castigate later commanders who didn't follow the plan that I have. Here it is. It's the plan dated February 23rd, 1944. It was discarded on March 2nd and a new plan came in. So uh, it's much better to talk to veterans of the action than it is to read the archives of somebody that was putting out a plan. And when it was brought before the decision makers, they would say, absolutely not, throw it away. It's the context. And it's hard to know because everything's changing every day and plans are being scrapped and people are being moved around and different, you know, at one point someone's a PL and all of a sudden they're an XO. And it's just, people move. Yeah. It's hard to, if you just focus on one date, or one training event in particular, it's it's telling a very small fraction of the overall story. Yeah. To your point, sir, we've got these maps of Omaha, which is a five mile stretch with very pretty icons and very cleanly written. But as you mentioned, the senior ranger that day was a major in the beach. Um, that's, well, no, that's he was relatively a colonel. Low level. Colonel, okay. Well, now, Sullivan was the exec, and he was in one boat. 
uh, Schneider was the commander and he was in an entirely, he was in a different wave of a different boat. And he was the overall, Schneider was the overall commander. And he commanded a uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, an eight company plus the headquarters. He, uh, Schneider commanded an eight company force in three waves. Two companies plus headquarters in the first wave from the second battalion. The second wave was three companies from the fifth plus headquarters. And the third wave was three companies from the fifth with, uh, again, from the fifth, again, headquarters element. And each company took, see, we only had 67 men officers and men in a ranger company. And uh, given a 15% overstrength because they expected at least 15% casualties. But we took them and made an 81 millimeter uh, mortar platoon. And in another company we made, there were two 60s carried in each company, but we combined them in another company and made a mortar platoon out of them with extra ammunition bearers for the 60s and extra ammunition bearers for the 81s as well. Now we we used our we used our overstrength to give us special platoons that were actually only I can't remember which was bigger a squad or a section now, but uh, I, I think. I think the squad was made up of four riflemen and a uh, section chief, and the mortar platoon had two 60 mortars plus uh, mortar carriers, things like that. I think I may have read some of the excerpts from your book there, sir. There was something about throwing a gas mask on quickly. Oh, yeah. That, that was my, in fact, well, something happened last night at dinner where I punished myself by wearing a face mask uh, at a time when I didn't have to because I hadn't worn it when I should. <laughs> but but uh, yeah, uh, that, that was a disaster. I was properly trained, but I, in the excitement of bullets going snap, 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 snap over your head, and you don't hear the shot. You hear the shock wave, and the shock wave points you in a different direction than the shot. Think about it. It's the way it happens. Mm -hmm. The bullet gets there at 2,800 uh, feet per second. The bullet gets there a lot sooner than the 1,000 feet per second bullet gets there. So. It's your head, it's four feet away, and uh, the bullet itself may be six, eight, ten feet away, maybe only four feet away. But after that sound wave has traveled a thousand feet, it's it's not even hearable in this among the sounds of battle. What you hear is the shock wave. Mm -hmm. hmm. So if you hear a bullet crack, don't look where you think it is. 
look where the enemy is, which is probably 30 degrees to the right or to the left of where you think he is from the shockwave. Very confusing for the untrained recruit. Well, and that's what goes back to you and um, talking about accuracy and uh, not firing all your ammo is because the untrained, yeah. they're just going to pull down the trigger and start hosing it down without even any regard of where it's actually coming from. That's right. And you know, I didn't learn about that shockwave bit until the Kennedy assassination investigation got to the ballistics research laboratory at Aberdeen. And I was the commander of the ballistics research laboratory. And they oh, took wow. me out. They took me out one night to prove a thesis and uh, put us in foxholes. And uh, we had to keep our, I think we had helmets on and we had to keep the helmet below the uh, ground line. And they then fired M16 rounds at us or at targets behind us. And uh, asked us to tell them where the shot came from. We would mark it down left, straight ahead of us or to the right. And uh, we all were 30 degrees off because it was nighttime and we were hearing the shockwave. We never even heard the sound of the M16 firing. The sound didn't even get to us in the hundred yards or something that we had there. And uh, that was when I learned that the extra rifleman, they called it the, uh, the second shooter, what mm -hmm. people were hearing was the shockwave mm. because ah. it's about 30 degrees off. And uh, that was one of the elements. By the way, at the Ballistics Research Laboratory, I think they still have Kennedy's brain involved. I looked at a jar up on top of a locker one day, and I said, what the hell's in that? That should be put away. He said, oh, that's uh, President Kennedy's brain. <laughs> that little thing? <laughs> and I got President Kennedy's brain, and the Congressional Committee is looking for it. <laughs> wow. <laughs> we, we have a lot of funny things in life. That, to me, was one of the funny ones. Yeah. <clears throat> That is an experience in of itself at that time. <laughs> um, you had me thinking of the shockwave thing, though, just when you're talking about it, because, yeah, that's and it's real interesting how well you knew that going again. That goes back to your training, the fact that they would essentially make you feel these impacts above near you blind in a sense, and then have to report based about how it felt or where the fire was coming from. Yeah. It's just that that's an incredible level of. Um, what? Like, Blanks don't do you're, that. you're doing everything possible, it sounds like, besides actually climbing and fighting face-to-face. -face. You are mimicking every single thing possible that could possibly thought of. Yeah, well, we, we tried to in our thinking. Uh, we mm -hmm. used sand tables. We used mosa aerial mosaics. We, of course, used maps. Uh, some of the maps were so detailed that... Uh, uh, they were, I think it was one over 10,000. Uh, and 
that means, let's face it, uh, that means that you can place yourself with three coordinates in uh, three significant figures in your coordinates. You can place the things down to 10 feet. I mean, we really knew where we were. We knew where the leaves were, where the leaves weren't, and things like that, because our, the mosaics and a couple of specialized maps that the G3 and the G2, or the S3 and the S2 had, uh, they were down at one over 10,000. And it's very interesting to me, the way they handle security on those things. When we were in base camp in Dorchester, they showed us the maps of the invasion area. Not a single word on any map. No coordinate structure or anything like that. Just the German positions and the terrain. And uh, we studied that. The day we loaded on the boats, they carefully took away all of those maps and burned them and gave us new maps and they had the coordinate structure and they had, uh, well, that was the main thing that they added was the names and the coordinate structure. So now we knew exactly where we were going in because there's only one part of the coast of France that is tilted the way the Normandy uh, beachhead is. So we knew exactly where we were going in. And uh, we had already, of course, seen the German fortifications, we knew Pointe d'Arc, we knew where the guns were, we knew everything we were supposed to know about them. We knew where their machine gun positions were, we had their minefields plotted. Uh, we were prepared and it showed because uh, when the second finally got to the cliffs, the first man was up the cliff in 55 seconds, he was on top of the bluff. Wow. And the wow. reason he did it, you stop and think, the bombing, one particular bomb, and it was a big one, had hit right on the edge of the cliff, right at the fracture point, and created a huge half crater. Of course, the couldn't create a crater out over the beach. And uh, that crater through the years had dropped spoil plus the explosion itself had dropped spoil down that actually it was a little ramp of about 20 feet height going up he had to do and the, the shell on crater itself was at least 15 feet deep so much of his climbing was already done. There were a lot of fracture marks that he could get handholds on. So he just first man off the, off the landing craft is the platoon leader. And uh, he just ran across 15 feet of beach, up 30 uh, feet of spoil, climbed about 30 feet with good handholds, good footholds and was in the base of the crater that's on top. And so that was a platoon leader who uh, climbed the very first, very first ranger up to the top. Now, did he throw yeah. a rope down or did you even need, like how did that work then 
you got the foothold. First person is up top. Uh, then what happened? Well, he, he, he had with him a rope ladder or maybe a rope. I, I think it was a rope ladder, but it doesn't matter. No. Uh, but um, he just dropped it over the side. He anchored it properly and dropped it over the side. And the men following him uh, had only 30 feet to climb. They used the rope. And before we knew it, you would have uh, the better part of a squad in a bomb crater. And as soon as he moved out with the people that had accumulated, some from other outfits, as soon as he moved out, uh, it suppressed the fire on other climbers. So they uh, were able to make it. And essentially they had uh, a fighting force on top of the bluffs, mostly in the bomb craters within five minutes. They had achieved the impossible. They, they had a battalion of three company fighting force on top of the uh, cliffs. Most of them still in the bomb craters but a few of them had uh, found their commanders and were already proceeding toward the objectives. And what was the specific objective once they got to the top? What was like, um, especially including like, what's the enemy disposition at this point in relation to the cliff that you guys are taking? Well, the point itself was a V and down Oh, a hundred feet from the cliff face, there were on each cliff face, east and west, they had three 155 millimeter gun pits. So there were six gun pits. Uh, one company had three gun pits to take care of, and the other two companies had three of the other on the other side, plus an observation point and a couple of machine gun points. The objectives were well-defined, but when they got up, you probably seen what Puente Up looked like the next day. It was nothing but broken concrete, bomb craters, and dirt. Mm -hmm. It was ugly as could be, and it smelled like hell. Mm. So, uh, they, uh, they got up there, they got to the gun pits, and they found out that the guns were telephone poles. And uh, then they, every one of them, they knew the plan. Sergeant, the first sergeant of uh, D Company became the platoon leader because of casualties. He knew exactly what the plan was. He assembled his platoon and people from other platoons and other companies and proceeded to go out and uh, set up blocking positions along the coastal road so that the Germans could not reinforce Omaha Beach from the base of the Cotentin Peninsula, which was where all of their reserves were. And uh, every other commander did exactly the same thing. They went to their secondary objective immediately, set up blocking positions and reported in. The first sergeant of D Company, uh, when he got his 
troops disposed among the uh, hedgerows, he noticed some suspicious tracks going down a dirt road, a very, very narrow dirt road. And uh, he called his sidekick to him and the two of them went on a patrol down that road and they hadn't gone but about a half a mile and they found the six gun, uh, five guns. Hmm. Sir, it seems That's like, good. It seems like there was so, so much planning and preparation for this initial phase. There was so, so much planning and preparation that we didn't even have to open our eyes. What about the next day? When once these initial objectives are secured, did you have to okay. huddle and figure out the, what's next? The second, the Germans in their official correspondence, and there are many examples of it, uh, thought that Plant Auk was the main effort of the invasion. He thought the Omaha Beach was uh, strictly a, uh, a ruse. And so he used his counterattacking forces for the most part, not all, but for the most part, he used his counterattacking forces in attacking the Point to Auk forces. And um, that, of course, relieved the Omaha Beach itself from counterattack. But Omaha Beach was already under severe enemy fire from positions on the bluffs where they had trenches, they had tow brooks, they had uh, uh, forts, they had small artillery, anti small anti-tank artillery, they had seemed like thousands of machine guns. But then again, the MG-34 and the MG-42 have such a high cyclic rate that one of them will turn out three or four times as much as many bullets as our machine raising, which is not an advantage because not a single round of that, but the first one is, is uh, aimed. Hmm. Just face it, when you push that trigger on the machine gun, that barrel is jumping all over the place and you aren't gonna hit a single soul beyond that first bullet. Right. And that's another, another thing that we had that you've got to know. The harvest had not taken place in June. The harvests take place in the autumn. As a result, most of the fields we encountered in the hedgerow area were loaded with grain. And that grain was uh, three to six feet high. So if you, if you were going through a farmyard between hedgerows, and the Germans opened up with their machine guns, the first bullet would be aimed, the rest would be high, probably. You could drop down into the grain. Have you ever looked over a field of wheat? There are no markers there. You have no idea where the enemy is, was. You know he's six feet to three feet down below your previous aiming spot because he's on the ground. But by then he's rolled away, so you don't even have a good asthma on him. That was how we beat him in Normandy. Nobody expected that, that the Germans didn't expect that could be done. So they'd engage a squad, 
with uh, machine gun fire, maybe the first round hit something, and then the target would have disappeared. The troops would have all rolled and crawled over to the hedgerow, slipped over the hedgerow where they could. A lot of places you couldn't get across the hedgerow. Slip over the hedgerow, go down the hedgerow, come in behind the machine gun position. That was the standard tactic developed in five minutes. Got to take this one. Very busy. Yes, sir. Bye. I will. Yeah. Okay. That that was the the iPhone. That I knew it would be of importance. If I didn't answer it, it would ring forever. Um, <laughs> We've where taken, were, we were, we've, we've taken a lot of your time, sir. Um, so if, if, if you need to, well, it doesn't matter to me. I have nothing to do, but finish my breakfast. Coffee's gone. No coffee still has a little bit. Breakfast still has a little bit, but, uh, I'm, uh, anytime it, it's interesting for me because it brings up memories. I'd forgotten about the blood on the bayonet. <laughs> But that, that just came to mind as a as a useful story, and I thought the uh, Kennedy story would be useful. It's interesting. Uh, the fa the fact that you do not hear the shot, you hear the shock wave. Very important. And I didn't learn that till I was in 06 on my way to Vietnam. Yeah, you know that story right there. Though me personally, I will tell that story no less than probably 200 and some times now. Like I will always remember that when the when that comes up about the, the grassy knoll and the shooter, I'm going to say, you know, I talked to a guy that was a ranger at Point Duhawk who know, has experience with these shock waves and he was a part of that study. So for me personally, that's just a cool, I mean, you said that you mentioned it briefly, but because um, especially the JFK thing. It's just a very interesting story. It still is, uh, however many years yeah. later. And, and the fact that you were sort of, you were personally involved with it. Um, again, by the way, on your way to Vietnam, a whole different war now. Um, it's quite incredible, really. Yeah, and we just, yeah. spent, we just spent so much time talking about a, a year and a half stretch, sir. And, and, and do I have correct that you spent 36 years in uniform? Well, I, yeah, no. Let's face it, I had four years in, uh, at West Point, essentially, and I was in the junior ROTC as well. So I had mm. uh, far more than 36, <laughs> little, little over 42, I think, in the uniform of the United States Army. Wow. So what year did you retire then, finally? What was the final? I retired in 79. Wow. 36, 36 years commission. There's a lot there. That's, that's, I guess that's of, what Preston's getting at. In one of my commands, the armament command, uh, I, uh, including contractors and things like that, I had 85,000 people working for me. Most of them civilian contractors 65 mm -hmm. ammunition plants, of which about 10 were active, the others in standby, eight arsenals, and uh, 
the headquarters itself, which must have numbered two, three thousand. That's a good sized so, town. It, it's a good sized town, and it brought prosperity to Rock Island and Moline mm. and Davenport and Bettendorf. Uh, by the way, adding the East Bettendorf and uh, Moline, I think it was West Moline, it gave six major cities in the area. And uh, they originally started calling them the, the Twin Cities. Then they had the Tri-Cities, then the Quad Cities, then the Quint Cities, but they would not go with sex cities. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe one day. They were too broad-minded to do that. As a matter of fact, at the time I was there, Davenport still had a red light district. Really? And the people that knew about it, which were the locals, that meant stay away. Of course, for the visitors, it was go and look. Right. <laughs> Sounds about right. Yeah. Tourist attraction. Yeah. yeah. That light stayed on. Yeah. It's an experience. And the more you do, the more you remember. Maybe that's why your memory is so impeccable is you've done some pretty memorable things. Well, I have had a very interesting life. I, uh, I was very fortunate. Uh, I had a lieutenant general for a career manager, General Hendricks, the chief of ordinance. He would call me up and say, John, uh, get packing. And I'd say, why? He said, well, I'm, I'm, I'm sending you to the Atomic Energy Commission, or I'm sending you to such and such and so and so place. And I got to develop a little rule. I always kept a box of Kleenex in the lower right drawer of my desk. When I reached the last piece of Kleenex, I usually received orders. Hmm. <laughs> I mean, just it was a rule my wife knew. She, About she time to start moving on, yeah. We'd inquire, uh, what's the state of your Kleenex box? <laughs> I like that as a timer. Yeah. It keeps yeah. things interesting, moving around like that. That is for sure. It's a, it's, it's a hardship, but it, you don't get bored. Well, I will guarantee you, um, the biggest lesson that I got out of my career was preparation, which means training. Uh, preparation is the biggest thing you can do towards success. And uh, in military tactics and formations and things like that, it's called training, but it's, it's preparation is the thing that counts. It eliminates the length of time it takes to make a difficult decision because you've already been through it. And it's, it's worth it. Um, I'm trying to think of the, the second main lesson. Well, that's a big enough lesson in itself. If, if people would only really, I, I remember we went through a discussion once, why do the Arab armies do so poorly in combat? 
And the answer is very simple. In our army, it takes about 15 years to become a battalion commander. Mm -hmm. You've seen it all, you've done it all, you've been through all kinds of exercises and all kinds of conditions. And uh, the decision-making process is mature. It's uh, usually pretty accurate. And what do they do? They select a damn who's 23 years old and they put Lieutenant Colonel's leaves on him and say, go run that battalion. They are totally untrained. They are totally inexperienced. They get in combat and uh, they aren't dedicated to the support of the Saudi family, uh, but the rebels, the Al-Qaeda's are religiously involved. And so they are far more dedicated far more trained, far more ready to be successful in combat. But uh, trying to think that six months in command of an organization that isn't even up to basic training standards could stand up to some people who are really dedicated to killing them is inexcusable. And inexcusable thought processes, decision-making, and so on. It's, uh, it's a shame. I will say this, that I visited Benning and uh, a bunch of uh, Benning five or six, seven times. And I've seen the Rangers there. I've seen the special forces at Bragg, that type thing. And I am totally impressed with today's soldier. He's bigger, he's smarter, he's better trained. Even if the squad leader says, Gentlemen, let's go. I mean, in my army, you didn't say, gentlemen, let's go. You'd say, all right, let's go, guys, or something like that. It's, mm -hmm. it's a different army, but they are better trained. They are far better equipped, as you would expect. That's why we spend so much money on R&D, is to be far better equipped than our opponents. But, uh, well, I like that we're fortunate that's all volunteer as well. Um, there's, you know, time and a place for a draft, but I think we're fortunate that the people that do do it all want to do it on their own vocation. Yes. Yeah, I, uh, on this last um, D-Day memorial, um, they had essentially about a platoon of rangers selected from every ranger company. I think they selected two or three from every ranger company to include the headquarters companies and things like that. And uh, so I got to talk to all states of the modern ranger. And plus I've been to the ranger graduations of about three different classes where they put on their demonstration of their skills and things like that. If we got in a fight and we were the best trained military organization in Europe to include the Germans. Uh, if we got into a fight with a modern Ranger battalion, they would wipe us out in 37.29 seconds. They are Hard that to much better. You just can't compare people who are equipped with night vision and uh, yeah, never run out of It's different. Well, think about, you were saying the BAR and the SAW right there. 
Um, yeah. The technology is completely, they're very, very similar, but the technologies are still vastly, um, vastly yeah. different between the generations. But you had when the grit, we, though. That's what it was all about at the end of the day, that grit yeah. and gusto to go up that cliff. Yeah, well, they did. And that was an awesome thing since there were two anti-aircraft positions on the bluffs beside them shooting into their backs the whole time. And uh, I have a very good picture of the cliffs taken from the far machine gun position. And uh, you say, they couldn't go up the ropes that slowly to get to the get to those craters or get to the edge of the cliff itself. Uh, but they did. They did. I think the guy that uh, first on top was named Lisco from the second battalion, but I'm not sure. Lisco was famous in the second battalion for some sort of skill, and I'm pretty sure it's because he was the first man on top of the cliffs. Mm. But uh, it, uh, it was the culmination of a great deal of thinking and flexibility for the platoon leaders to recognize there are no guns here. Mission, mission two, get out there and set up those blocking positions so that they can't counterattack uh, the beachhead. Uh, initiative. The Marines like to call it improvise. There we go. But um, it's, the, it's the same thing, initiative. Impro improvisation, training, understanding the plan, understanding the farther objectives and all of those things. We, we didn't need the 29th Division to tell us what to do. They did, and as a result, it took a lot longer. Right. But as soon right. as soon as soon as them damn generals got in the way, things slowed down. Sure. Was violence of action a term of art? Was say that again. Violence of action. Was that a term of art back then? No, we never used that. That what you're describing is like, let's say our, like I always heard that growing up doing ROTC, just training in general, violence of action. That's what they beat into your head, which is exactly what you're describing. Initiative, yeah. decision-making, no hesit, you know, once you make a decision, you have to go and that's it. Um, you go. You go and you don't uh, think. And then the reason you don't think is because of all the training. That allows right. you to not have to think. So I was just that's curious, that's, kind of, that's a more contemporary term uh, where we, we're, we're, oh, we're just building upon our forefathers, if you will, right? The stories that, the things that you have done, um, other people in World War II, uh, people in Korea, people in Vietnam. I mean, it just continues, right? We just continue to build and learn all the, the hard lessons. You and they are hard lessons. Men die as a result of not knowing them. Mm -hmm. And even those that know them often die. Right. But, uh, and there's a saying that we all use, and that is that no plan survives the first shot. Yep. Yep. That's the same. It doesn't change. That is, that is in the book of Genesis. It's Genesis 1, colon 1.1. <laughs> right away. Followed by the enemy always has a vote. 
the enemy always has a vote. And if he's a smart enemy, it's one thing. If it's a well-equipped enemy, and uh, I see pictures of Al-Qaeda training, the Taliban training, and they use the same obstacle courses now, the same ranges, the same pop-up targets and all of those things that we use in our training. Uh, they don't have the, where we have all the ammunition that we expand in training, our people in that sense are uh, more effective because they get to train in, in truth a lot more than the enemy does. But uh, most people don't realize that the enemy has adapted, adopted, and adapt uh, everything they can learn from us to their training methods and uh, combat procedures. Uh, the Taliban so, are using, I mean, they'd be fools not to, right? The Taliban I saw when they overtook Afghanistan this summer, they were using drones and they essentially dropped a, uh, a bomb on a sort of general, a, uh, a very high up guy for the Afghan government and uh they used a drone like a uav that's kind of what we did and so we had it on our side the whole time but now they have it on theirs and that sure changes things right. too again they adapt and adopt everything that we do so we don't have the advantage that long for that particular issue uh, and then we we develop a new tactic or a new piece of equipment and sooner or later they will capture it and uh reproduce it and use it mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and they don't have to reproduce it all they have to do is get it to the chinese get it to the russians they'll produce it in quantity and give it to you and even their tactics though even not even just the equipment the tactics are always changing because yep. both sides are always watching each other yep and they are changing adapting that was true, though. I just I did want to mention the you're uh, you're talking about the Arab armies. That that was something to put in perspective. Like when we showed up, it it seemed like, of course, you know, the Afghan army guys, these guys just weren't trained at all, and they didn't know much of anything. Well, no kidding. If you think about it, like by the time we got there, like you were counting West Point years, like let's say, like I was a PL or whatever. That's six years. I was six years in the army, essentially, of experience and all sorts of training and different rounds I've shot and the Fort Benning stuff. And these Afghan army guys are just showing up out of nowhere with, with uh, two, two months of training. Them. Yeah. Two months of training. I mean, they don't know what they're doing. Yeah. Um, and we all do. And it's in, it's in the moment, it's very frustrating because you feel like, what the heck, like, why are they so incompetent? But it's just a time and an experience thing. And there's just, there's only one way to earn it. And it's just do the hard part of getting yeah. there to that point. Absolutely. Well, General Ron, sir, I really appreciate you taking the time to, to talk with us. Well, I, I was going to say the, the things that you've gone, that you've explained just today, but, but, all that you've done, all that you continue to do, it, it has an impact. You mentioned the soldiers today, the training today. Um, that all comes from somewhere. And it's yeah. incredible not only to speak to somebody who is a part of that, um, but that you continue to share it because it's, I think it's really, really important. So thank you, sir, for all you did and, and all you continue to do. Well, 
thank you for having me. I hope it was useful. It was an absolute honor, sir. Yes. Oh, sir, men like please. you are the inspiration behind us that want to keep carrying the torch. And now we're done. I mean, I'm done with it. Heck, I got out 10 plus years ago. So I'm one of the ones where the memories are becoming the faded dreamlike. But then there are content. What's to me, what I love seeing is just the youth. You were talking about seeing the uh, the, the contemporary rangers and it. I do too. I like seeing the new, the fresh blood that come in and they keep, they're eager and they're motivated. They're inspired. And, and the stories like what, you know, you were sharing with us, those are what, that's the spirit to keep all of this motivation behind, especially as we are an all volunteer force nowadays. Yeah. Um, I particularly like seeing two former Rangers get to the four-star level and begin to influence things from the perspective of special forces. Mm. Uh, they, uh, the thing that I have noted in my career, I, I was pretty high in my class. I was in the engineers. And uh, although I was 54 in my class for four years, I was like in the top 10 for my first class year. So I was, I was pretty high, pretty high in academics. And uh, I thought that uh, I was smarter than a lot of people, and I was. But the one thing that I noticed, and I served uh, to where, to where I was, uh, what is it, one, two, three, possibly four levels. Actually, I had a job in the, in the OSD, uh, very close to Oliver North's. I was the same grade and things like that when I was there. And uh, I, I had a tremendous that I went two-star, I beg your pardon, three-star and four-star rank where I knew I was much smarter than they. I would put them up against me anytime because they were at a higher level, a more complicated level. They had more understanding of the higher levels of government than I did or of the organization and things like that. Experience is almost as important as training because of the knowledge that you pull in from experience. Uh, I knew two Lieutenant Generals uh, in OSD, one of whom was smarter than I. He was in the Corps of Engineers in my class and he was plain out and out smarter than I was. And I know he was, uh, but I had another one who got the same rank, but he got it the snivelly way. He never grew with the extra knowledge that he had. Uh, I visited him once in uh, Rock Island and uh, he kept the desk between me and him. He was afraid I would come across that desk and hit him because he was so damned incompetent in so many ways. Uh, but the, the big thing is that if a guy has served where you talk to the 
Deputy Secretary of Defense on a daily basis and get thrown out of the Pentagon by him. That happened to me too. And, uh, well, it didn't hurt me. I, I got to be a two-star general. But, Building uh, character. It worked out. It, uh, it worked out. And they, they sooner or later found out that they missed me and they made me come back to the Pentagon. But I was, I was really enjoying that six months at the AEC where I had a job there too also. I had two jobs. I was on a uh, military liaison committee staff and I was in the, uh, that portion of the OSD staff that dealt with the deputy secretary of defense. And he, he, he threw me out of the office one day. That's part of the job too, though, right? Everyone has their own hill to die on. Yep, figure out they do. Want. We all have it. Okay, well, we've said our goodbyes. And uh, anytime you wish to do something else, I would be very happy if I'm still capable of uh, love to do that, going sir. through again. And one other thing, uh, if you could send me a thumb disk or a DVD of whatever your final product is, I would appreciate that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So that should just about wind it up. There we go. That was uh, not even the tip of the iceberg, sir, but thank you so much again. No, it wasn't time. the tip of the iceberg. <laughs> I had many other jobs that were equally, I never had a bad job, never had a bad job. I always, uh, some of them I didn't like, but I never had a bad job. We should do this again, because I'm very interested in, in hearing more about, about your career. Me too. There's a lot, in, there's so much in there. So, and we only talked really, we ended on day one of World War II. So <laughs> yeah. there's a lot left. We haven't uh, even gotten out of World War II yet. <laughs> Yeah, it's just been incredible talking to you. Really appreciate it. Well, I thank you all. Yes, sir. We'll uh, we'll do this again soon. But have a wonderful week, and uh, thank you. Okay. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye bye. Hey, if you've got an extra sixteen seconds, it would really mean a lot to me if you left a review for War Stories. I read every single one of those, and we'll do our best in coming episodes to maybe shout some of those out, just as a way of saying thank you for taking the time. But either way, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.